Hello, and welcome back to the Great Women Artists podcast. I hope you are all doing well. I am really delighted that this episode is supported by one of my favourite jewellery brands, Alighieri. During this difficult time, Alighieri will be donating 20% of website sales to the Trussell Trust, who are supporting food banks around the UK. Alighieri is also offering 10% off for Great Women Artists podcast listeners with the code TGWA. Here are a few words from their founder, Rosh Matani, and I hope you enjoy this episode. To course over better waters, little bark of my wit now lifts her sails, leaving behind her so cruel a sea. And I will sing of that second kingdom where the human spirit is purged and becomes fit to ascend. But here let poetry rise again from the dead. O holy muses, since I am yours. And here let Calliope rise up for a while and accompany my song with that strain that smote the ears of the wretched pies so that they are despaired of pardon. In the first canto of Purgatorio, Dante emerges from the cone of the inferno to see light for the first time. It's the moment where hope returns and there is music and poetry again. He calls upon the muse of poetry, Calliope, and the Calliope fresh pearl water necklace takes its inspiration from this moment with jiggity-jaggedy imperfect pearls representing the fact that hope is always on the horizon. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from the Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015 which celebrates female artists on a daily basis ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so delighted to say that today on the Great Women Artists podcast, we are talking to one of the world's greatest writers and curators, the exceptionally brilliant Helen Molesworth. Recently, the chief curator at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles, where she co-organized an incredible survey exhibition of Kerry James Marshall, which I was lucky enough to see a version of in New York, as well as organizing the great Anna Maria Maiolino's first American retrospective, among many others. Prior to MOCA, Helen was the Barbara Lee chief curator at the ICA Boston, where she curated shows of the likes of Catherine Opie and Amy Silman. Previous curatorial positions include at the Harvard Art Museum, Wexner Center for the Arts and the Baltimore Museum of Art. And earlier this year, she also organized an outstanding Noah Davis exhibition at David's World in New York. And she is currently working on a major project for Jack Shaman in upstate New York. The host of one of my favourite podcasts, Recording Artists by the Getty, Helen is an acclaimed author of numerous catalogue essays and her writing has appeared in publications such as Art Forum, Art Journal, Documents and October. But the reason why I'm so excited to be speaking with Helen today is because she recently authored an incredible essay on my favourite artist of all time, Alice Neal, 
Writing about Neil, she said, but what I find profound about Neil's work, the way she attempts to represent people, is that I see it as trying to embody equality. Her paintings are an attempt at rendering individuals in a world of types. They are a form of looking that knows that even though we are individuals, what we share, birth, sex and death, make us deeply common to one another. Helen Molesworth, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Oh, Katie, thank you so much. That was such an extravagant <laughs> introduction. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's great to be I feel like we should just close. It's great to meet virtually. (laughs) Like, we're done. (laughs) Um, It is. It's very nice to meet virtually. And thank you so much for having me on. I've been listening to your podcast, and I am very flattered to be in the company of all of the other amazing people you've had on to talk about these incredible women and incredible artists. Oh, no, thank you so much. It's really, really an honor for me. So I've been so excited about this episode for so long and so thrilled that I could interview you on Neil because Neil really is the reason why I do what I do, like so many of us. She was the one who made me realize there was this gender imbalance in the art world, which then prompted me to start my Instagram and podcast. But what I think is so electric and powerful and contemporary is the way that she paints these expressive portraits with thick outlines and pierced eyes, the way that she herself wants them to be immortalized, but also how she paints an honest depiction of community. So I'd love to just start off by asking you, how do you feel when you're confronted with a work by Neil? Oh my God. Well, (laughs) I mean, I love that you claim her as your origin point. Because I think that, how to say it, I think we all have these experiences of art as adolescents, right? The art we fell in love with first in a museum, in a book. And then as we grow older, you know, we go to college or university and we get our degrees and we learn about theory and we learn about conceptual art, minimalism and everything that's wrong with museums. And we, <laughs> our taste changes, right? And yet we still have these like sort of core touchstones, the early things. And some of us grow very embarrassed about those early moments, you know, your Van Gogh <laughs> moment, your Winslow Homer moment, your Alice Neal moment. Um, <laughs> yes. And then there's this other moment where you get to like sort of reclaim that early entry point. And Neil, for me, is one of those figures. I mean, I remember I'm a New York City kid. I grew up going to museums in New York. So I had encountered Neil at the Whitney. You knew about her. I knew about her. But then there was just this long fallow period where I never, I'm ashamed to admit it, I never would have engaged with the work because I was cutting my teeth on Duchamp and I was trying to understand art in relationship to labor, art in relationship to, you know, the politics of the world, of collecting, of institutions, art that challenged the very idea of art. Yeah. But one of the great things about being a museum curator is that when you first started a museum that has a collection, you, you know, if you're worth your salt, in my humble opinion, if you're worth your salt, you start spending time in that collection and figuring out what what do, the, what do these people have? What are the goods? Yeah. yeah. And when you encounter Neil as part of the goods, you're like, wow, I got to put that puppy <laughs> out on the wall. Like that's just an amazing picture. Yeah. And whether you put it out on the wall because you're hoping that some other 16 year old is going to have the same experience you did in the galleries 
So basically whether you're offering her as a gateway drug is one thing. But then the older I got, the more I realized, you know, how extraordinary she is and that I had allowed some of the kind of general prejudices of the art world to inflect my own deep feelings of love and respect for that work. So my re-engagement with Neil perhaps has some of the fervor of like, you know, the lapsed, the lapsed believer when upon returning to church, you know what I mean? Like I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm even more doubled down on Neil now than ever yes, before Yes, <laughs> because I forsook that kind of work for a minute or two in my, in my so-called career. But Neil is truly an exceptional painter, an exceptional portraitist. And I think, you know, one of the things that I find so extraordinary about her, when you look at an Alice Neal, you always know you are looking at an Alice Neal. There's no mistake, right? Her sense of quote unquote signature style, again, an old fashioned idea that I was taught to throw away decades ago, is so strong. And Mm -hmm. yet when we discuss Neal, we all talk about the intensity of the individuality of her subjects. And so this fundamental contradiction continues to be like a kind of flame underneath my interest in her, in that work, like how she does that and what that might mean. So I'd love to ask you from that then, if you could describe one work and sort of tell me why that particular work affects you so much. Well, I mean, there are so many, as you know. I mean, I I personally find the Margaret Evans pregnant portrait really extraordinary. In it, we see a very slender Caucasian woman. She's seated on some kind of Ottoman low stool. There's a full-length mirror behind her, and she is really quite pregnant. I yep. mean, she looks like she's in her eighth or ninth month. I'm, I've never been pregnant, so I don't know. But you can really see the sort of effect of this straining belly on this otherwise kind of spindly bird-like frame that she has. And I, sense, I feel like Neil really gives us a sense of the weight in this otherwise sort of weightless individual. And totally. Yeah, right? Like it's really an extraordinary thing. And then her eyes meet the viewer with a kind of very present tense intensity. I mean, one feels like the picture is almost still being painted, but her reflection Mm. in the mirror is different. Like she's imaged in the mirror as older, graver. You know, so there's this double temporality within the picture itself between what her face looks like, quote unquote, front on in real life and what her reflection in the mirror looks like. And it has that signature electric kind of blue line around the exterior of her body, the silhouette of her frame. I mean, that's one of my favorite pictures. I think it's many, many people who know Neil. It's one of their favorite pictures. But more recently, I have to say the two pictures that are twinned in my mind's eye and I find myself thinking about troubling over is the portrait of Andy Warhol and then the self-portrait that she makes at 80. I mean, these two as companion pieces, like I really hope when out there to my curatorial colleagues, when the show goes to the Met, 
you know, I really, really, really hope somebody hangs those two things on the same wall yeah. so that we can have that moment of this. Because Warhol is so vulnerable and Neil mm. is so strong. And she paints herself as like an old woman, but she paints Warhol like an old woman. And Warhol's old woman is like my stereotypical idea of what an old woman is. And Neil's old woman is like, damn, I hope I can pull that off at 80. Like, I hope I can be that old woman. And they're just so different, the registration of frailty versus strength, while what they share is incredible intimacy. And so somewhere in between those three pictures is where I live at the current moment around Alice Neil. Yeah. I just think that Warhol image is just so powerful. I mean, it was one of the first images I was actually introduced to. And it's the way that he's even just fading into the canvas or something. There's just nothing there. There's there's such frailty. And when we know what Warhol was capable of, and we know his artistic oeuvre, and we look at this work, it's as though I don't even know how he let her paint that work. The fact that he is immortalized like that and he immortalizes everyone else in a completely kind of sufficial and commercialized way, then we get to him and he's just cut up. You're right. He's like a sort of old woman and his legs don't even finish and there's not even any knee. I mean, it's just even the sofas bare. You know, it's there's, there, I don't even know if this work is primed. You know, it's like he's just slowly sifting away into death almost with this work. That's so beautiful to think about whether or not the, that your recollection of it is that the canvas might not be primed. I mean, to think about silk screening, right? And to think about that kind of wash of paint being pushed through a screen onto a canvas, which was, of course, his metier. And to yeah. think that she might be in some way riffing off of that consciously or unconsciously that you now in 2020 can make that kind of, you know, casual connection between them is really fascinating. I mean, I don't know for anyone who's listening right now, please go and Google Alice Neal and try and watch a few clips of her like on the Johnny Carson show or something because, Oh my gosh. Yes. I mean, she's, she's, (laughs) she's sheer genius. I love how she just loves the limelight as well. It's just wonderful. It's how people should be. Totally. How women should no, be. Totally. She's there in like a floor length <laughs> gown and a, you know, a small handbag. And really she's like a woman from another time. I mean, she's born in 1900 and she's on the Johnny Carson show. And you realize that she could talk the bark off a tree. You know what I mean? Like that she just, she has this kind of prattle she could just go on and on and on. And it's like, it's sort of stream of consciousness. And it kind of comes back to what's at hand. And then it it kind of goes off. And she's utterly unafraid of her own mind, unafraid of her own opinions, but then says, Oh, well, I don't know, perhaps I shouldn't have said that. Are we allowed to say that? But she's totally winking, because you know, she's going to say exactly (laughs) what she wants to say. I mean, she's unguarded and unedited in that manner. And so there are accounts of people who sat for her basically talking about how during the warm-up phase, she would just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. And while she was talking, she would be talking people out of their clothing. So, you know, she'd be prattling on and then she would say, I don't know, maybe we should just take off your jacket, you know, and then she'd keep talking and then she would go like, you know what, it'd be better if you took off your shirt, you know, and just like, and all of a sudden... (laughs) 
Did she play strip poker with some people like Cindy Nemza or something? Pretty much. Like pretty much she's got people naked and sitting for her. Now, how she's able to do this with Warhol. I know. It's just madness. Is utter madness. And yet, when I look at that portrait, what I see is, I mean, it's interesting that you bring up poker. They're kind of playing (laughs) poker with each other as artists. Neil, I think, knows that if she paints Andy Warhol, she's going to end up in the history books. Like Andy Warhol is the most famous artist of her day. And if you make a portrait of him, you have a chance, if not being recognized for your own greatness, being recognized as a portraitist of a great person. This is one of the ways portraiture works. And Warhol is also got a little dog in the hunt here. He's like, if I'm going to be painted by Alice Neal, I'm going to let her, like what Alice Neal knows how to paint is skin. Yeah. And if I'm all buttoned up, it's not going to be great. Like I think Warhol knows in order for it to be great, he's got to let her paint what it is she really knows how to do, which is this giant muscle membrane that divides us and the world, right? Skin. So I kind of feel like they're both, it's really like a boxing match. It's really like Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. Like you have two greats and they're going to go down together in that portrait. Like they know that they each amplify one another. And there's just like a shit ton of artistic ego going on in that painting, which is, I think, one of the reasons it's so electrifying is because you're just like, damn, there's a lot of exposure going on here. Warhol's really vulnerable, but so is Neil, because if she gets it wrong, you can't get that painting wrong. You've got to nail that painting if you're going to do it. So it's such bravado. It's just, it's genius. It really is genius. I think it also just shows as well her ownership of people as well. I think that's something that we come time and time again is she's really owning her city. But I want to come back to her portraits of men and everything a bit later. But I'd love to just to go back. You mentioned that she was born in 1900. I mean, tell me about her upbringing. Who were her family? Was she surrounded by art when she was younger? Oh, no. She's one of those incredible creatures, people who aren't surrounded by art and culture, but who nonetheless know that they want to be artists. I have a deep sense of admiration for that quality of artists who grow up not in a city center. So she grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania. She knows early on she wants to be an artist. She does end up going to art school. She goes to the Moore College of Art, which is a women's art school. She went there pointedly. She would say later in life because she didn't want to be distracted by boys. I think she... (laughs) I think she was a very free person in that way. She had a sense of herself as an erotic being, as a curious being, as someone who was going to embrace life. And she wanted to figure out how to make artwork before the boys came along. (laughs) She ultimately, early in life, meets a fellow artist from Cuba. He comes from an affluent family. She does not. They fall in love against all odds. They have a child. Their first child dies within a year of being born. It dies of diphtheria. There's a sense in which Neil's life really does run concurrent with the 20th century. She experiences all of the tragedy and all of the liberation that the 20th century has to offer. She's quite extraordinary as a human subject in this regard. 
out of devastation and the loss of the infant child, they immediately get pregnant again. They have another child, this time a young daughter. But by this time, their marriage is falling apart. They both want to be artists. They're both young. They both want freedom. And long story short, ultimately, her second child, her daughter, is taken away from her, taken to Cuba, and deposited with the grandparents in Cuba. And they don't see each other again, for the most part. I mean, there's one, you know, moment. But that child, in many ways, is abandoned by both her mother and her father, because her mother and her father want to go off and be artists. Yeah. You know, Neil has a nervous breakdown in the wake of the child being taken away from her. She spends almost a year in a mental health facility. And for women in a psychiatric facility in that time period, you probably had to work very hard to preserve your own sanity, right? But Neil does this, and she does manage to get out of the psychiatric facility. So she manages to come out with her mental health intact. And she ends up part of the WPA in the United States during the Great Depression, making money, making paintings, and lives in the village, has lovers, and at a certain point decides to leave Greenwich Village and move uptown to Spanish Harlem in Manhattan. And this is another one of her extremely unconventional choices. She decides she doesn't want to be part of this avant-garde art milieu. She wants to be, you know, uptown, basically where she thinks people are realer. And I think she also wants to be uptown because she chose to be poor. Yeah. And I think she wanted to live with other people who were poor so that it could be easier to be poor. You know, you can be poor more easily in a community, perhaps, of, of people who understand the limitations and the benefits that poverty allow one. And she ultimately goes on to have two sons. And so she's just an iconoclast, you know. She lives uptown when everyone else lives downtown. She paints portraits when people paint abstractly. <laughs> she paints portraits when people do minimalism. She paints portraits when people do conceptual art. She never wavers. Yeah. From portraiture as her really her primary mode. I think that's what's so then sort of contemporary about her work, because even, you know, going back to 1930, when she's making the portrait of Ethel V. Ashton or she's, oh, my God, that horrific portrait of Joe Gold or Isabetta from 1934. When we think about what was happening in 1930 in the rest of the world, and someone like Paris, you know, it was surrealism. It was Dada. Like all those kind of works were happening over there. Yet what's so I guess crazy when you see a work by Neil. So, for example, Ethel V. Ashton, the fact that it is painted in 1930 just blows my mind in a way because that depiction of the female nude is so real and so contemporary and weighty. And it just feels, it's like her work is totally timeless the entire time because she's never conformed to a certain movement or she's never conformed to a certain place in the New York society. She always has her own way. Well, I think that's really interesting because I think that one of the things Neil's work shows us in a way. So by the time she's starting to paint nude women in the 30s, Cubism has, of course, like completely reshaped the painterly imagination. But it's reshaped the painterly imagination of people who have already had plenty of opportunity to paint their own female nudes, right? Basically, if you're a white male painter, and you've gone through all these iterations. Maybe by 1930, you're like, you know, I'm done with the nude because what can I offer to that 
situation. But if you're a white woman trying to paint a nude, you don't have that same 400 years of scorched earth of painting nudes. You've got very little to look back on and say, what does it look like for me as a white woman to paint another of my white female sisters nude in front of me? So that is a space of radical innovation at that moment. But I think we were all taught in this very like narrow, progressive teleological art history in which one thing immediately cancels out the thing prior to it. And what we see, I think, now that we're reimagining art history as being filled with a heterogeneous number of practitioners that include women and people of color and non-Europeans and all of these other tranches that have emerged is that we see that this triumphant historical march isn't what's at stake for them. And that doesn't mean that the work is lesser than or less avant-garde or less radical or less transgressive or whatever word of value you want to put on the story of art history that you're telling. So when Neil's nudes emerge, they emerge with very little else to think them in relation to. And now, of course, when we look at them, we can think them in relation to a lot of things. So now they're even, I think, richer, like their work that has accrued value over time. Because now we can look at a 30s Neil nude and think about it in relationship to a 50s Playboy image, a 70s feminist image, yeah. a 90s Lisa Yaskovich image, right? Like we can, yeah. we can lay down lots more cards now. And the accrual of meaning over time is one of art's great gifts. So this aspect of Neil really actually quite turns me on. No, I think it's so interesting. And also just the way that I think her relationships with people, even early on, I find her work of her children extremely fascinating because even you mentioned earlier how she wanted to be poor and she wanted to struggle but she was also bringing up two sons at the same time and when I look at a work like Hartley and the Rocking Horse from 1943 it really shows her as yes a mother but also a mother who is a painter who has a job as well you know Neil never really confined to the rules of what women were expected to do ever you know I can't even imagine what it would have been like being born in 1900 and going through that part of the world and actually wanting to be your own person and take care of yourself as well. Yeah, well, there's that great quote she says, you know, and she laughs uproariously after she says it about saying something to her mother about wanting to do something, wanting to be something. And her mother basically saying like, I don't know what you expect from the world. You're only a girl, you know, and, (laughs) and just Neil's refusal of that situation, while at the same time, never in the way that I think so many women of her generation, she can't fully embrace capital F feminism, like she can't sign on to it. But I think she always can talk about female oppression. She's very clear that women aren't getting the same opportunities as men. But she always also falls back on this intense individuality. Like at the end of the day, there's you and you alone in your bed, no matter who's sleeping next to you. And you've got to, if you're going to be an artist, I think even more so for Neil, you have got to be willing to really understand that 
the internal contours of your own mind and your own limitations and your own strivings. And that's the dichotomy in the work, right? Like this tension between the individual and the type, the individual and the group. It's a really structuring antinomy for her. Yes, I think that is so interesting, especially in the sense that she has this such also broad spectrum of sitters. Because when we think about, I don't know, that show Uptown, for example, which was based on the portrait she made when she was living in Spanish Harlem, which was curated beautifully by Hilton Owls. And I think what I find so interesting, and I mentioned this in the introduction, but so groundbreaking about her work is the fact that she is just painting a portrait of a real community who is a real person who exists in a real space in a real time it feels like how is that the most groundbreaking thing in art but yet I always come back to it because it's a true depiction and a true portrayal of what people were like in that time and it allows people to see themselves in art and be involved in art so you know when she's painting her local communities in in Harlem it just shows that it doesn't matter who you are you can be a playwright you can be a handyman you can be anything and that's what's so groundbreaking about her work, I think. And I think if you see, if one of the things we could say about the 20th century, if such a thing is possible to talk about the 20th century, but I think one of the things it has offered or one of the narratives we hold dear about the 20th century is that it's a series of struggles for liberation, whether it's a liberation from a kind of autocratic nationalism, whether it's liberation from the vestiges of slavery, whether it's the liberation of women from patriarchy, it's the liberation of gays and lesbian queer identity. Like these are the waves that sort of tumble over the 20th century. And that liberation, it seems, the moment I have reveled in the effects of that liberation for myself, like as a woman or as a queer person. But that's not when I feel myself free. I feel myself free in moments that are actually really small, really tender, and are really internal. Freedom is not given, it is assumed. And that's something Carrie James Marshall said once, and I've never forgotten it. Like, no one gives you your freedom. You take that shit. And you take that shit internally. And so I feel like Neil is someone who understood that about other people too. Like that when she's making that image of another person, she is not only channeling her own freedom to see them as she sees them, which I think is really important because it's not a photograph. She could have been a photographer. She's interested in painting an image that conveys to you how she, Alice Neal, a free person, has an encounter with another free individual. And how does she paint both the individual as free, but also her encounter with them as a moment of freedom. And I think it's the encounter that's so provocative in Neil. And it's what we're seeing when we talk about the details in Neil that we love. Like when you talk about Warhol sort of sinking into the canvas, right? Like that's about the encounter she's having with him. And so I think that that quality in Neil, one of the things we see in the pictures, like in the rough brushstroke and the blue electric line in the exposed canvas is that it wasn't easy. That that encounter always takes a kind of labor, that it always has a certain kind of difficulty, that there's always apprehension in the mark making, unfinished paces, lines that go astray, that she doesn't wipe out, that she just redoes. So you can see like, oh, she didn't get it right the first time. That she lets you see so much of 
the encounter through the process makes her, I think, even more interesting to me as an artist. That is where part of the vulnerability of those pictures comes from for me. Definitely. And when you look at those works from the Upper West Side, but also Spanish Harlem, the fact that she's painting this community as well. I mean, when I saw it all laid out in the gallery before we hung it, there were all these kind of paintings next to each other. And it was as though they were all kind of friends or something. And with those works, less so than the nudes where you're right. It's interesting, actually, because I'm looking at, you know, works such as Benjamin or Ron Kajiwara or Stephen Shepard, and they're really kind of full works in a way. And they're full works and they're sort of more portrait-like. And then you get into her pregnant women and you see like a pregnant woman from 1971 and it's this woman who is experiencing this pain it's as though Neil is having these different encounters with people the entire time it's sometimes I feel like it's a conversation and when they're exposed it becomes a whole different story it's as though the body takes over the whole of the landscape of the image and therefore the sofa can just be a single blue line and it actually doesn't matter the chair doesn't matter anymore it doesn't become about that yeah, no, it's true. I mean, most of the portraits you're referring to actually were made in her studio, which was the living room of the apartment. So I think part of that is Neil knows that chair, literally like the back of her hand. They are who yeah. they are in Neil's interior, which has been stripped away of almost all kind of identifiers, markers of, you know, taste, class, location, time period. So the sitters bear the weight of all of that. Like none of that energy is being displaced onto objects as it so traditionally is in the history of portraiture. So I think that's another reason that there's this intensity between her and her sitters. I do think that the pregnant women and the nude women, there is a degree there. I think you're right to point it out that in some of the portraits, there's much more finish. And in the women, there's much more of a kind of unfinished energy that happens. But I can't help but think, you know, she gave birth four times. Yeah. That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I've never done it and I know it's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> like shit. <laughs> like, you know. She know, I know, I know. I mean, it's mind God forbid if I ever I ever give birth that I end up like one of these women. I mean, I'm looking at one right now and I'm sitting down and it's as though I can almost feel these like protruding nipples and the soreness and oh. the just this giant coming out of your stomach it's like yeah it's really alive as well I think that's what she does in a way beautifully but also very grotesquely as well and I think the way that you know again I, we're talking about the history of art and Judy Chicago kind of talks about this as well but the way that the Madonna and Charles has kind of even historically been portrayed in the history of art as this kind of perfect body and this perfect birth and actually when you look at what you have to go through psychologically, for example, Well Baby Clinic from the early 1930s and that realness of losing the child and then having this strange kind of nursery scene, but there's so much blood in it. And I think what she's painting and what she's constantly searching for is this kind of truthful portrayal. I mean, that pregnant woman, again, it's like she's got these green stains all over her and it's as though her stained body is also staining the sofa as well. So what do you think she's trying to say about motherhood? Well, I think she's someone who knows there's no guarantee. You know, she has yeah. four children. She births four children. One of them dies. 
One of them is taken away from her. Two of them show up and they turn out to be completely different from her and from one another. And I think like there's something about Neil that knows like childbirth is a kind of universal. Motherhood is a kind of universal. Like ain't nobody get here except via that aperture. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you know, (laughs) you've got to come out. Every single human on this planet comes out of woman's womb. And so for all of that intense, intense commonality, a universality that is probably at the very heart of misogyny itself, right? Like the fact that we cannot abide the fact that that is where we come from. And I feel like Neil paints all those women with the full knowledge that you simply do not know what is going to happen there. You don't know what kind of kid you're going to get. You don't know whether it's going to be healthy. You don't know whether it lives. You don't know whether you get to be its mother. I just think she goes in pretty gimlet-eyed there. There's no sentimentality. There's no fear. There's no emotion in a sense. There is a kind of like, yeah, this is real life. And this is a moment of real life that is intimately connected with death. I think, again, that quality of her being born in 1900 is so important. She knows women die in childbirth. She knows children die in childbirth. She knows children don't make it. She knows there are no guarantees. And I think the intensity of some of those paintings is fueled by that energy, you know? Yeah. What do you think she gave women, in a way, with these truthful portrayals of what it was like? Well, I mean, in the conversations I've had with mothers who are artists, artists who are mothers about Neil, I feel like one of the things she gave that category of of people, persons, is the freedom to understand that being an artist and being a mother are two roles that are in Western patriarchal culture incompatible because both demand the complete absorption of the person. So you're supposed to give everything to your art. That's what makes you a genius, right? Is that you're willing to leave any party, you're willing to forgo any luxury just for the sake of the work, right? You're completely single-minded if you're an artist. And the same quality is demanded of motherhood, you know, that you will do anything for your child, that you will put your child before anything else. If you're an artist and a mother, you're in a very tough place, right? Because you're supposed to be dedicating your entire self to both of these things, and that's not possible. And I think what Neil gave a lot of women who were artists was the understanding of the pull, of the ambivalence, of the struggle, of what it might mean to really make great art and to try and raise children, to raise children that ended up good kids. You know, the two sons go out into the world and have their lives and also have left behind a staggering body of artwork. I mean, I think it gives women both a sense of permission and a sense of hopefulness. I think what it gave me as a queer person who's not a mother, not an artist. Well, one, and it just is really dumb. I don't really know what 80-year-old women look like naked. I'm going to be one, hopefully. I'm going to (laughs) be married to one, hopefully. And when I look at the Neil nude self-portrait, I have this incredible feeling of calm comes over me. 
Like, oh yeah, I'm going to be just fine with that when we get there. Just fine. Like the housing I came in with and the housing I leave with, I'm going to be just fine with them. You know, and there's something I find very liberating about the frankness of that picture and the tenderness of it. And just that tiny smidge of defiance in it as well gives me a lot of energy. Yes, completely. There is so much frankness to it, but it's so bold and powerful at the same time as well. What does Neil really embody for you? Neil, for me, in her largest iteration, embodies something that the French philosopher Emmanuel Levinas talks about. And I think this is really why I love Neil more than anything. So Levinas talks about how in our encounter with others, the face is this primary form of the encounter, right? Like we look at at one another's faces and this is how we make an enormous amount of conscious and unconscious judgments about one another. Pheromonal feelings, feelings of trust, you know, all of these kinds of feelings, humor, what kind of person you are. You and I have already made, even though we're doing this through Skype, (laughs) we've made a series of unconscious decisions about one another based on our facial encounter right now. (laughs) But then Levinas goes further to say that, so when we have an encounter with the other, and we have this encounter through the face, that what's at stake there is ethics, right? And so what we tend to do is say, well, we are alike. We are both white women and we like art and we like Alice Neal. And so our bond comes (laughs) through this. But Levinas would say, no, this is actually the worst place upon which to build ethics is this sense of commonality. Levinas says, The only way you and I can really build an ethics to one another is to understand and accept our radical otherness from one another, our unknowability, right? That I can never actually really know you. I can never really know my wife. My wife can never really know me. And that that's the place from which ethics comes, that you build your ethics not on what we presume we can know about one another, but that we build our ethics on how we treat one another based on the fact that we can, in fact, never truly know the other, that there is always something intractable and private and unknowable to us about the other. And that's the place from which you develop how we're going to treat one another. That, to me, I've never seen any other portraitist other than Neil embody that Levinasian ideal more fully. She knows them. She looks at them. We know a lot. And yet we can't understand why Warhol took off his shirt. Why does he do that? What is the wounded other in him that lets that moment happen? That unknowability in those pictures, but the ethics of I am going to respect you, even though there is going to be something about you I can never know. That is where I think Neil is just like a fucking genius. So when you look at her self-portrait then, how do you think she is presenting herself? Because I mean, this is the 80th year that she paints this in. And it's incredible because it's almost like her sort of final gift. She goes out of the world with this work and she's scrutinized every other person. And yet she's given us this. I mean, how do you think she wants to be remembered with this work? 
Well, I think she's a crazy egotist. I think she wants us to remember her as a genius. I do think she's occupying, I mean, she spends her whole life in New York City. That woman has walked in the Met. That woman has walked in the Frick. She knows what a killer artistic self-portrait looks like. And she knows she is staring down the face of Velasquez and Goya and Rembrandt and Courbet. She knows exactly those pictures. And so when she looks at us like that, when she looks away from her canvas and toward us, she's like, I have this. I can paint this in the canvas. I can paint this for you. I can paint this for history. I think there's the frankness of the body of like, oh yeah, no shame. Like here it is. This body gave birth to four children. This body painted all these pictures. This body got me here. 80 years in this vehicle. I know it. I love it. There's just something so saucy in the way she looks. You know what I mean? Like, there's just something in that look of like, <laughs> you know. There's it's, some- it's so flattering in a, weir- in a really weird way. I mean, totally. now you've mentioned the Warhol work, I now see in a weird way, the fullness of this work and the kind of beauty in it. And actually how, when you compare it to the Warhol, the fact that you even have those kind of sort of chunks of flesh on those ankles that even seems soft and beautiful like she's immortalized herself as this nude painter I mean it's so egotistical no I think it's a very (laughs) in some ways the self-portrait says I am vain and I have painted myself in my vanity and in my (laughs) vanity I have painted myself honestly Like she doesn't hold honesty and vanity separate there. She's showing you the vanity, but she's showing you the vanity stripped bare. And that is an extraordinary moment. And I think she's also showing you there. Oh, gosh. I really, you know, it's something like I'm not there yet, but I do think there is something about older women where I can see it on some of my friends who are there. It's like a flip gets switched and they just feel released from the patriarchal gaze. It doesn't mean they don't want to be beautiful. It doesn't mean they don't feel sexy. It doesn't mean a whole host of things. But the patriarchal gaze, that internal voice in all of our female heads that tells us that we're being looked at and is wondering if we're measuring up to that gaze. I think there are women at a certain age for whom that quality of life dissipates. And I feel like that portrait is painted in the wake of that dissipation. But then I think it's so interesting when you look at her works in the 70s and obviously Warhol, but also someone like John Perrault, where she's also, in a way, playing with the idea of the male gaze, reversing it all. How do you see that she's presenting men? Because in a way, she presents men in this very kind of hyper-sexualized way. Well, I think, you know, as a lesbian, one of the things I think I can see really clearly in the pictures is how much she liked men. I think she liked <laughs> I think she liked male bodies. I think she liked dick. I think she liked she to me she she makes the paintings of someone who likes fucking. Like I like yeah. to fuck. I like to fuck women. She likes to fuck men. It seems really like there's something and I don't know how you can have 
a desiring gaze without some form of objectification. Whether or not such a thing is possible, maybe it is. I'm whatever, I'm a human being formed by 54 years of white colonialist patriarchal thinking. My desiring gaze tends to objectify. It tends to be involved in that. I tend to want to be desired in a similar way as well. I'm aware that that gaze works in both directions. And I think that Neil is painting in a tradition that has made much of that objectifying gaze over the four to 600 years of paintings of nude people. So you know how like when you see a Sylvia Slay painting it's all cheeky. There's a kind of breaking of the fourth wall to the viewer of like, hey, have you noticed? I've turned the tables here. But I never feel that in Neil. I feel just more like that she could do it because she wanted to. Yeah. I think with Neil as well, compared to Slay or something, there is this, even something with the John Perrault, there is this kind of light that's on him and this very intense light and it's just her whereas with Sylvia Slay it's kind of more relaxed it's daytime it's cheeky it's we're gonna focus on this we're gonna make these pubic hairs really humorous because they're really this perfect locks and she really paints the kind of honesty on it and she's scrutinizing her sitter and she wants to claim this man's body and say you know what I can paint that ball sack or I can paint that penis in a really fleshy way <laughs> totally she cl- that's why i mean she likes them she likes looking at them you know she's not grossed out at all <laughs> you know? like, yeah. i mean she she's really it, she's into it you know that john perot is so incredible apparently he went and sat 13 times for that so she really got a oh good my look god wow she really got a good look and i think that is part of it like part of it that she paints him like he's a lover. He wasn't. He, he was gay. He had a male lover. And I wonder if partly his gayness meant she could look longer, you know, meant she could, that something between them was suspended. And so she could just really look as long as she wanted. That's so interesting. But I mean, it must have frustrated her so much that she didn't have recognition till right at the end of her life. I mean, it was 1974 that she had the Whitney show, but I mean, even that was panned. How do you think she dealt with this? Oh, the Whitney, yes. She gets a retrospective show in 1974. It's thrown together quickly. It's brutally panned in the New York Times by the then very important critic, Hilton Kramer. You know, I'm obsessed by this part of her, largely because I don't understand it. At the end of her life, the apartment is filled with paintings. There's a long hallway. There's painting racks. There are hundreds of paintings in the apartment. She painted all those famous people. You know, she wouldn't accept commissions because she said, if you accept a commission, then you have to paint a person how they want to be seen. You don't accept a commission, you can paint what you see. So this, really this choice toward poverty so that she could do what she wanted is real and ongoing. What drives someone to keep working in the face of not being recognized or being recognized and then being trashed? I don't know. I mean, I think some of it's partly just internal. I think she painted to stay sane. I mean, Moira Davey says this in the podcast that I did about Neil that you so graciously referred to at the beginning. Moira and many artists have taught me, like, the art keeps them sane. You know, you make work so you stay grounded. The world is a hard, cruel, difficult place. But also I think you make work 
And I didn't really realize this until I wasn't institutionally affiliated. You know, you keep doing your work because you actually have some kind of hope that's much bigger than you, that you're hoping that if you contribute, that if you pay into the kitty, that it's going to be better for somebody else. And I do think she had that kind of long-term hope about what it is that culture does and what it is it's for. Yeah. Why do you think that people are so drawn to her work now? I mean, you even mentioned when you were younger, you had this sort of second wave of love of Neil. Why do you think it is now that we are so, I mean, it's so interesting. I mean, I discovered her work about seven years ago and still still in that honeymoon phase. But, you know, so many of my friends who are artists are kind of beside themselves. And I, in a way, I kind of grew up with it, but I don't even know what it is. It's just maybe it's even seeing myself in these works. It's so strange that a portrait painter can have such an effect on people. What is it that make her work so contemporary and why did thousands of people come and see her show at David's Werner and Victoria Miro and why is it so popular? What is it, do you think, about her that speaks to the time that we're living in now? Oh, it's such a good question. And it's such a difficult question. I think that the history of art is just so narrow. And I loved the narrow version of it. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, you could lead me from the cave paintings, you know, through the Renaissance to Caravaggio, <laughs> to Corbet, to Manet, to Picasso, to Pollock. And I would have been fine. You know what I mean? I was completely turned on by that story. But it's just such an incomplete, narrow version of the thing. And so you have this incredibly powerful tool called painting. And it's not open to half of the world's population, women, until (laughs) the beginning of the 20th century. And then it's not open to even more aspects of the population, people of color, until the 50s and 60s. So what you have is a kind of damn, we're still existing. We don't understand this because we exist in such a presentist mode. But I think many of us are still living in the flooded plain of the dam that got broken in the 80s, where all this like broke open. And there was a whole wave of people who said like, whoa, 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 whoa. There are all kinds of human beings making all kinds of things they consider to be art. We're going to try to make a story that encompasses these things. And so when we encounter Neil, I think partly what we're encountering is the extreme improbability of what it means to use a 400-year-old picture-making device called oil painting to make contemporary pictures. You know, so the pictures Neil paints in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, we think they're old, but I think they're actually like totally present because they're still about the fact that there is still a patriarchy. We are still white supremacist, colonialist subjects. Like that shit hasn't broken down yet. We can talk about wanting to break it down. We can name it. We can point (laughs) to its deficiencies. We can point to the ways others have fought against it. And Neil is part of that. That's why I think she's so alive for so many people now is because those pictures aren't historical. They're contemporary because they're still doing that work, actively.
actively yeah. in galleries yeah. everywhere. And what do you think Alice Neal has taught you as a person? Oh, now this is going to sound terrible because it goes against like we're all taught like don't judge a book by its cover. <laughs> I think Alice Neal has taught me that I should trust what I see. I should trust what I feel. That when I meet someone and I look at them and we're talking, that a lot of that information is real. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. Oh my God, Katie, um, thank Helen. you. And we've just got one more question because as this is the Great Women Artists podcast, we always ask our guests at the end of each episode. If Alice Neal were, I don't know, Skyping with us today or... So let's just say all the last three were in New York on the Upper West Side. If she was there, what would you say to her? What would you ask her? What would I ask her? It's really petty. <laughs> but she tells this story several times in different ways that she left Greenwich Village in part because there were all these, you know, bull dagger dykes, like very <laughs> masculine lesbians in the village. And they produced some kind of aversion or anxiety in her. And so I think I'd actually want to talk to her about what it was about lesbians that freaked her out and how she squared painting all those nude women and her aversion of lesbians. I kind of want to get at that just a little bit with her because I, she's such an open-minded person. I'm curious about her blind spot. I'd want to talk yeah. to her about her blind spot. Even though she taught you not to judge anyone yet. She, exactly. Uh... <laughs> no, definitely. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Helen. This was such, such a treat. Thank you. Thank you, Katie. I really, really appreciated it being on your show. Thank you all so much for listening to the 23rd episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the completely brilliant Helen Molesworth on the great Alice Neal. Wow, was that such an incredible insight into her career, but also to hear Helen's personal take on Neil, who remains very much for me as my most pioneering artist. This podcast was sound edited by the great Amber Miller. And if you have been enjoying these episodes so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps people find us. And of course, thank you for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. <laughs>